Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and I'm thrilled to announce that I am joined by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Cash, it's been a minute, man. What's going on? You know, I think tomorrow, from, from the time we're recording this, about 24 hours from now, is the uh, astrological end of summer and beginning of fall. But I, I believe... Was, isn't the 21st the... So it, it varies. It varies every year. 21st is like what we're taught in school, but yeah. it's all dependent on the sun and all that. But uh, so apparently this year, the astrological start of fall is actually like sometime in the afternoon on the 23rd. But what I was going to say is, I feel like this episode of Pound the Rock and the reunion of us recording together at the same time is really the unofficial end of the summer, sort of break it to everyone, and the beginning of fall and the beginning of basketball season because it means that both of us are kind of done with all of our vacation, like somewhat done with our vacation time and the short weeks for me and all this, and we're back to a regular schedule and we're back to being ready to cover another glorious season of NBA basketball Wolfon's doing some math on his fingers right now, and I'm trying to figure out what the hell he's trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out, okay, what is this, season six now of the show? If you include that like little bit of, yeah, it's the uh, uh, 17, 18, we caught no, the like- No, sorry, it's, yeah, six, uh, this will be our sixth full season, but it's seven if you include yeah. the kind of tail end of the 2017, 18 season, yeah. which is when we started. So welcome to season seven of Pound the Rock, reunited to- I don't know. Talk about some bullshit, basically. Like, that's really all there is to talk about right now is just a bunch of bullshit. Uh, I, I don't know. We, we kicked around a bunch of potential topics, some of which I'm interested in talking about, some of which I'm honestly not. But I, I will ask you, I guess, where you want to start. I mean, we got these Giannis comments that I, I guess we have to hit on and, and talk about the implications of those because there are some potentially far-reaching implications of those comments. Uh, I don't know. Kelly Oubre might be a 76er. Buddy Heald appears to be on the trade block. Uh, You know, there's all these new draconian player resting rules being put into place. There's a bunch more Dame bullshit. Where are we starting here, Cash? I'll leave it to you. Um, you know what? I, let's start with the rest policy. And the reason I say that is because you mentioned it being draconian. And I actually want to have a conversation about that because I feel like we're going to disagree on this particular tenet of the new player participation policy, which is a, uh, I guess, building off of the original player resting policy, which was instituted in 2017. So I guess I want to hear your thoughts first because you you're, you just said you feel it's draconian. So why do you feel it is I mean, I, I think you'll agree about this part because we've talked about it a bunch before, but it's not really addressing the root of the problem. And I don't know if we're ever going to get to that point, but I know that you and I agree that really the only way to fix this in the way that the NBA presumably wants it to be fixed in terms of you know, not only players being available for a larger portion of the games, but also the regular season feeling like it matters more, you know, the quality of play generally being better, player health being better. While also, like the only way you marry all this together is by shortening the season. Yep. And that we do agree on. You know, my my ultimate dream I've always said is that 58 game season where literally every team just plays every team twice, once home, once away, 
Yeah. I'd be good cutting more than a quarter of the regular season. I think that would actually lead to the best basketball, the healthiest players, the freshest players, no back-to-backs, sense of urgency in every game, all of that. So I'm with you there. Right, and that's that's kind of... I just think if you're not willing to do that, you're going to keep tying yourself in knots, trying to find a solution to a problem for which there is no solution, right? Like, it, they're, they're instituting this policy on top of, like, the 65-game minimum that they already installed for awards and all-NBA eligibility. And when they did that, we talked about that as, you know, being potentially dangerous, honestly, for players because they have like these massive financial incentives to potentially hit that benchmark and that could lead to them pushing to play when maybe they shouldn't. So now, you know, uh, in in tacking this policy on top, this is the other thing where I think it's going to be probably fairly opaque in terms of like what rises to the level of being considered, you know, an unhealthy player. You know, like, like where, where is that threshold? Like how much information are we going to have? Uh, or is it just going to be sorted out between the teams and like their medical departments and, and the league? Because I feel like really like this isn't the league sort of waging war on its players. It's, it's like the league waging war on, you know, sports science departments or like biometric data analysts, like whatever these teams call the group of sports scientists that are making the calls on these things because that's like when it comes to like resting load management programs, like it's not like the players or even coaching staffs are deciding this, right? Like in fact, a lot of times probably the opposite. I think it's the players and coaching staff, the player themselves being like, I want to play. And the coach probably being like, wait, you're telling me I can't have LeBron James tonight when we need to win this game because the, biometrics are showing like his hammy is heating up or something like right and and that's the thing like i think for the most part the players actually want to play but they also want to make choices that are going to be in the best interest of their careers long term and they on their own like they don't have all the information they need in order to be making those decisions like the teams do so that's where i'm like you know, maybe draconian was the wrong word to use, but it just feels like it's opening a potentially uncomfortable can of worms when you as the league are potentially going to be at loggerheads with like a team and their their sports science department and trying to figure out what you deem, you know, a, a, an acceptable level of injury or injury risk for a player that a team like could, could rest them without being subject to a fine. And, and I, I don't know. I like ultimately maybe it won't make that big of a difference or it'll be a positive. Like I, I'm not saying that there isn't a problem, you know, like we've acknowledged that the, the issue exists. We talk all the yeah. time about how it's tough. Like when we're trying to analyze regular season games and there's like one of a team or both, both the teams have their best players or multiple of their best players sitting out almost every night. It feels like. I know that it's an issue. I just don't know that this is the way to go about trying to fix it. Yeah. And, you know, the point about the players wanting to play, like that's why it bugs me when so much of the conversation is centered around how like the players are soft or whatever, when I don't think they're the ones making the decision, yes. you know, 98% of the time. Agreed. And I'll also add to, like you mentioned, we've acknowledged that there is a 
problem. And listen, that's just us as people who cover the league being like, well, we can't really analyze these teams because the best players didn't play. Like that is what it is. But as much as people might like roll their eyes at this because they've heard it so much and they probably see it as like, oh, it's just the league's way of kind of like toying with our, like playing on the emotional side of it. I do also think there is the side of it where it's like, you know, there are people out there paying their hard-earned money for, and listen, the part of it too is those games are considered a premium. Like we live in Toronto. We know how it, like my dad remains a season seed holder. I know how it works in terms of the way, um, even for season seed holders, yeah, a Tuesday night game against Charlotte is priced one way. And yeah, when LeBron James's team comes into town, it's priced another way. And that's for season seed holders. It's for if you're buying single game tickets. So if you do have a family, you know, someone wants to bring their kid to watch specific players, sure, once in a while a guy gets hurt, what are you going to do? That's the nature of the game. But it is a problem. And I think it was becoming a problem for the league. Adam Silver has acknowledged it, that it had really gotten to a point where, you know, you're paying a premium to watch certain teams, to watch certain stars. And it almost felt like at this point, it was like 50-50 on whether like by the time that guy comes to your town, you're actually going to see him. So there's a lot, I think, to talk about here. One, yeah, like I said, completely agree with you on the fact that if the NBA truly cared about like all the above all else, all we want to do is put the actual best possible basketball product on the floor every night, they'd shorten the season. Like we're in agreement there. I don't really think there's an argument to be made against that. However, neither the players nor the owners want to deal with the decrease in revenue that that would bring. And that's why even in the like latest round of CBA talks, the reports were that on both sides, it was kind of a non-starter to shorten the season. And because of that, a new CBA got ratified that I think runs through at least 2029. So the 82-game schedule is going nowhere. And that's because both sides probably acknowledge that even though it would be for the best from a basketball perspective, no one wants less money. Like, that's just the way it is. And if they're all in agreement that unfortunately that's the way it is and if they want to keep the exact same money or continue to build on it they have they have now an 82 game season is the way it's going to be well then it's also in their best interest to do whatever is possible to make sure that 82 game season is the best possible product it can be now i'm with you on the 65 game minimum award things i was down on that from the beginning i remain concerned about that like that to me if we're talking about any anti-resting rule or policy that's been put into place that's the one that concerns me because that is the one to me that might and ultimately probably will at some point lead to a player making a reckless decision with their health strictly to reach a financial incentive so that one does truly worry me and i think it's so or like having a huge spat with their team exactly seems like you can't play like it's, yeah. it's a risk to your health and the player i don't know either just like disagreeing yep. or not caring or thinking that the the team is maybe trying to manipulate their games yes. played so they don't hit all nba and they don't become super max eligible yeah. like there's all these ripple effects that are, are going to be uncomfortable i think agreed and i think that rule that policy is completely unnecessary as we discussed when it first came out the voters the writer whoever like can use judgment and context like we already do or like media who votes on these awards already do. If a guy played 61 games 
and was still going to get MVP votes, guess what? He must have had an ins- batshit insane 61-game season that must have merited that MVP consideration, right? Like, or all-NBA consideration, whatever it was. So that rule, completely unnecessary, especially if they knew they were also going to institute the new player participation policy. To me, it makes it even more so that like the 65-game minimums for award was a complete waste of time that's just going to put the players in danger. On the same page there. However, the actual new wrestling policy, player participation policy, whatever they want to call it, I know I'm in the minority here. I actually like it. Because if they had just not done the 65-game minimum BS and just done this, I would have been in support of it. Because if you read into it, and I I do get what you're saying, that there is going to be... There's going to be some gray area here in terms of like what is deemed reasonable evidence that a guy needs to rest. But... You know, if you read through the policy, it does say, like, one, teams can apply for certain exceptions, special exceptions for 35 guys who have been uh, are age 35 plus and guys who have played, I think, 34,000 plus minutes in the league to rest one half of back-to-backs. Teams can apply for special exceptions to sit guys one leg of back-to-backs if they have unusual, an unusual uh, or recent injury history. So someone like a Kawhi might still be sitting. That's the Kawhi rule. Exactly. And again... But that makes sense, right? As we've talked about before, people can laugh at the Kawhi load management stuff all we want or all they want. We don't laugh at it. But this guy has been diagnosed with um, a degenerative degenerative issue in his quad, like in his leg. So those exceptions still exist. And though the league has the right now to investigate, like anytime any one of these rules are quote unquote broken, it automatically triggers a league investigation. And that investigation could include an independent medical review of that player in question. Now, again, we're not talking like there are going to be obvious ones where it's like a guy is injured. He can't play. The league's not like it is what it is. We know that. Or a guy's got a complicated recovery process. Can't play. It's fine. Any of the things that teams can apply for exceptions for, again, understandable. The the players will be held out, rightfully so. But if a player is healthy and whatever evidence the team has is not enough to convince the independent investigation that, look, this guy needs to rest. And I'm sorry, that guy should be in the lineup. And I know that might sound cold, but again, I'm saying if a guy's hurt, sit. If if a guy's medical team provides enough evidence to suggest he's not technically hurt, but he should rest and the league accepts it, sit. But otherwise, if a guy is healthy and a star player that people are tuning in for or paying money to go see, and he's healthy, he should be in the lineup. And what I was going to say when I, uh, when I said, I don't want to sound cold, but like on a certain level, this is a little bit, you know, like Hyman Roth and Godfather 2, I said to myself, this is the business we've chosen. And these world-class athletes who absolutely should be respected and, you know, treated with the utmost medical respect for their own health, for the longevity, at the same time, do have to understand that if they're in this business, and they're healthy, and they are one of the marquee players people are paying to see, they should be on the court. And the teams have to understand that too. So I'm okay with it. And I also like the fact that it's not just about like, oh, we want guys who are banged up to be out there, enough of this resting. Because I don't like that side. I don't like the old head Charles Barkley types of, oh, well, we used to play there. Like, it's not about that for me. It really is just about ensuring that while they're in agreement, 82 games is the way to go, making sure that is the best possible product. Again, not putting anyone at jeopardy. If a team says, hey, this guy needs to rest for this reason, 
and they can provide that evidence to the league investigation, then that guy should rest. But otherwise, if it's just like, you know, we don't really want this guy to play tonight and what, like, I'm sorry, man. He's a star player, professional athlete who's otherwise healthy. He should be on the court. And I also like the fact that they are going to clamp down on the late season shutdowns or participation reductions. That's the, that's the unambiguous best part of it. Yes, because, for example, last season with Damian Lillard in the midst of probably a career year, one that already included him putting up a 71-point game, entertaining as hell, when everyone knew he was fine and healthy, the Blazers just wanted to maximize their lottery odds. Guess what? If the league actually upholds these new rules, even games including the 13th place team in late March are a little more watchable now if you're telling me Damian Lillard's in the lineup as opposed to Shaquille Harrison. Like, sorry, I'll do respect, but you know what I mean. So there are a lot of reasons where I actually like this part of the new resting rules. I think if it's followed probably by the teams, if the league conducts itself honestly when it comes to the independent reviews and stuff, I think this will make for more games of the guys we want to watch, more meaningful games, actual big star matchups again, instead of only getting them once every three times we're supposed to get them because the guys are resting. And it will bring some sort of competitive integrity back start to finish in the season, I think. if Again, if it goes the way it should go. And then when you combine that with making sure more teams are playing meaningful basketball later into the year, when you look at how the NBA Cup should ensure more teams are playing meaningful games early in the year, you add this, which of course... This resting policy also includes the NBA Cup because NBA Cup and national TV games are among the games where teams are not supposed to rest star players at all. All other games, it's just they're not supposed to rest multiple. NBA Cup and national TV, they're not supposed to rest any. So you add that all up, and I do think if if teams and the league go about this the right way, we're setting up for, in the midst of this era of unprecedented parity we always talk about, we're also setting up for a regular season that should feature more meaningful basketball, more star player games than we've seen in years. And I think that's a win for everyone. Do you think it's a good use of time and resources for the league to be launching an investigation every time there's an instance where one of these rules may have been bent or broken? I think that when you have an upcoming media rights deal that you're trying to secure that you are trying to, you know, reports saying that you can go from 2.6 billion per year to potentially like 5 billion per year and there's streaming giants want to come in and there's going to be more national TV games, then I actually think it might be a decent use of resources to make sure that teams are playing the star players that people are tuning in for if they can. Yeah. I I can't believe we spent 20 minutes talking about this. I don't even care about it that much, but... Uh, okay, we're back, baby. Let's <laughs> let's move on to something less boring. Uh, not to, I mean, I I respect all the points you've made, and uh, I appreciate the the dialogue. But can we talk about pick pick one of the options that you threw out there earlier in the show? What do you think of uh, Kelly Oubre, Philadelphia 76er for you know probably a one year minimum deal? At this point, that's re- really all they could sign him to. So. I mean, I like, I'm kind of meh on it. Oubre's had some good years in the NBA where he turned himself into a really solid role player. He's had some 
less than good years. You know, he he did just average 20 points. Like, you could spin it like that, right? You'd be like, the Sixers just added a 20-point-per-game guy to a team with Joel Embiid, James Harden, and Tyrese Maxey. But looter in a riot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the classic example of that. So, I don't know. I mean, his defense has slipped to me. He's always been a really inconsistent shooter. Like, I think he's had a couple of years where he shot the ball well, but for the most part, he has not been a good or consistent three-point shooter. His defense has slipped. He's I, on a team with better players. He's not going to be a 20-point-per-game scorer. Like, this to me seems like one of those classic, like, uh, kind of interesting moves a contender makes late in the season to add a guy, but then you by December, we're going to be realizing this really meant nothing. Like it's the, it is what it is. It's a minimum type signing and he'll be playing like 12 minutes a game. Maybe, but also, I don't know, on a Sixers team that could be trying to like tread water while they wait for the Harden situation to resolve itself and probably is going to need some kind of offensive punch off the bench that's pretty light on wings. Like, I don't know. One year minimum contract makes it so low risk. And, you know, the potential reward might not be that high. Like, it wouldn't be as high, for example, as just looking and saying, oh, 20 points per game. Like, it's it's not as high as those raw numbers would su- suggest. But, like, I don't know. There's definitely a scenario that I can see in which having Ubre coming off the bench as a guy who can, at the very least, go and get you a bucket. And I think defend on the ball pretty capably. Like, I know you said his defense slipped, but look where he was playing last year. You know, like a zero stakes environment. Um, I think there's a scenario in which he has a meaningful impact and gives the Sixers fantastic bang for their buck. I do think, to your point, there's also a scenario in which he doesn't move the needle. um, You know, like doesn't mesh with the starters in, in mixed, you know, transitional lineups can't pick up Nick Nurse's defensive principles at all and it just amounts to a nothing signing but I you know even if that does happen what have you really cost yourself oh um, I agree with that like it's a low risk I you know no criticism of them for doing it I'm just very skeptical about how much value he's about to add to this team yeah and I mean he's not really a Nick Nurse kind of player like he's not the headiest player he's not necessarily the greatest decision maker on either end and, you know, to your point, yeah, he's not much of a three-point shooter. Like, I, I guess he can be okay for stretches, but for his career, he's been below average as a three-point shooter. But he definitely has some scoring chops. He's super long, and he plays really well in transition. And I think that specifically could be a nice boost for a Sixers team that, like, just always seems to play a little bit too slow and, like, needs a bit of a kick in the pants and a bit more pace. And I think he could pair pretty well with Maxi for that reason. So I, you know, I kind of like, especially on a one-year minimum, I like it. And uh, you know, to my point earlier, like I think the bottom line is this team just needed a, another wing, <laughs> and I, you know, as depth and just insurance on the wing, I think you could do a lot worse. Yeah, and listen, I mean, you mentioned the uh, them kind of having to wait it out until this Harden situation is resolved in any way. Training camp starts 10 days from the day we're recording. So that resolution might be coming soon. I don't know. Or it could completely go the other way and be haywire 10 days from now. Harden goes the Harden road and actually shows up, but goes pure agent of chaos. And 
unless you have more thoughts on Kelly Oubre, I was going to ask you because you did mention like, you know, there's more Dame bullshit or whatever, or there hasn't really been. It is bullshit. But since we last... of the previous bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Since we last spoke together on this pod, like a little over a month ago, has there been anything that's flashed across the screen for you that's come across your eyes or ears, whether it comes to the Harden situation, the Dame situation, or any of these kind of big lingering, looming superstar trades out there that has actually piqued your interest in a way since we last spoke or to you, is it the exact same thing to you? Cause for me, it's the exact same thing. It's like, Oh, mystery Eastern conference team might get involved for Dame. It's like, yeah, my stance on this hasn't changed. The Blazers should try to get the best package for him. And yeah. any team trading for him should call his bluff. If he doesn't want to report and be like, well, then you're not getting paid. But like you have four years and $260 million. We don't believe you that you're not going to play. Yeah. Did you hear what was the latest thing that like if he does get traded somewhere else, he's just going to immediately <laughs> request a trade to Miami? Like, oh, this, it's funny to me because he's like he's doing the Dame loyalty thing. He's just doing it for a team that he doesn't yet actually play for. Yeah. Just yeah. And toes down in South Beach, man. Oh man, maybe he'll open a Toyota. He's got a Toyota dealership in Portland. I wonder if maybe uh, there's already a, a Lillard Toyota in South Beach, in Dade County. Oh my god! Like yeah. Anyway, so no. Like I guess if there's one thing that has to your you know to use your parlance piqued my interest, it's the fact that I think when you and I started talking about like the Dame to the Raptors possibility or it didn't even seem like a possibility at the time it's just something that we wanted to see happen and i still very much do and i still very much think that you know like a a framework centered around scotty barnes and damian lillard obviously there's a lot of like additional salary that would have to go into that deal to make the matching work i still think that's the deal that makes the most sense for both teams you know, for a team that would theoretically want to acquire Dame and for the Blazers in terms of like what they would be looking to get back. I feel like when we started talking about that, it was like not on anybody else's radar. I wasn't hearing anyone else mention the Raptors as a potential trade partner. And now I feel like anytime this gets brought up, their name is being thrown into the mix as like a potential suitor. And I wonder if that's just like, more speculation and because more people have started to talk about it like they're just inevitably going to get mentioned because now it's out there you or know, if it's strictly it's because people listen to Pound the rock and watch the scores youtube channel no i'm not saying that i'm just saying i wonder if that's is that a speculative thing mm -hmm. that has just gained traction in people's imaginations or is that based on some rumblings that you know maybe there's some mutual interest there yeah i think it's an interesting question what i find interesting though is that when these various outlets, plugged in reporters, whatever, start now start mentioning the Raptors as at least like a fringe candidate in this Dame stuff, they often bring up OG. Whereas when we talked about it, and I think in a much more sensible way, we talked about it with Scott. Like if the Raptors are actually getting in this mix, it's with, because they're putting Scotty Barnes on the table. The OG side of it, which is what most of the other people who have brought it up are talking about, makes no sense to me because one... I just don't think he's the building block that Portland should be looking for in a Dame trade. But two, he's on an he's, expiring contract. He's on an expiring contract. It makes zero sense. Even if the Blazers were higher on OG Ananobi than myself or anyone else in the world and actually think he's that franchise cornerstone, 
that the, well, he's still going to be an, a free agent a year from now, and you risk, I'd say, most likely losing him a year from now. So it makes no sense, and that's why it would lead me to believe that it's more speculative when these people are bringing it up because I just can't see a world where there are actually rumblings internally in the league that the Blazers have given any thought to OG Ananobi being the centerpiece of a Dame trade. Yeah, and so just to reiterate why I think it would make a lot of sense for the Raptors, I've probably said some version of this before, but they've essentially painted themselves into this corner where it makes way more sense for them to try and compete now than it does to you know build toward a long-term future. It's not even just about the lightly protected first round pick that they have out the door in 2024 and how that's going to make, you know, potentially tanking or retooling more complicated and and less fruitful. Just to, sorry, just to remind people that the way that it's a top 6 protected pick, but to guarantee yourself a top 6 pick in you the be one of the two worst teams. Exactly. So yeah. they could tank, finish with the third worst record and they would not guarantee themselves of keeping that pick. But I think basically, it, it go like doing the Dame move would just simplify all of their decisions, clarify their timeline and their ambitions, and then it's like, you know, I I don't actually know what's going on between them and Pascal right now. What the conversations have been like, where the relationship stands. If this really is just about him holding out to see if he can make all NBA and become super max eligible. If that's all it is, I don't know. I'm like shocked that he hasn't like either been traded or been extended by now. It's, it's really crazy to me, but I think in terms of like the uncertainty about that, about his next contract, about OG's next contract, if you bring in Dame, it's like, okay, we're doing this. We're trying to compete for the next three years. And then it's like, yeah, we're, they're not going to extend OG because he's, not going to be able to be paid market value on an extension, but like you let him get to free agency, you have his bird rights and you pay what you have to pay in order to keep them. And if that winds up being an overpay, it's a justifiable overpay because you're in this window of contention. Whereas in this situation, if that happens, it's harder to justify overpaying OG if you don't necessarily see where all this is going or where he fits into your long-term plans or whether you even have this ceiling that is like worth paying a role player, you know, $35 million a year. But I think in this situation, it's like, yeah, we're extending Pascal. We're paying OG. We have this quartet, you know, Lillard, OG, Pascal, Pirtle. That's a core four that can contend in the Eastern Conference right now. Mm-hmm. And that's just like, I think all the moves that they've made to get them to this point, if there's one thing that can actually make all of those moves make a lot of sense, it would be the kind of, you know, if you want to call it the nuclear option, the all-in move, whatever. I, I just think that it, it would clarify so much for them. And I would I would be totally on board for it. I also understand the arguments against it, and we don't have to lay all of those out right now. You know, Dame's age and, you know, his, I guess, potential reluctance to play, though, again, I don't really buy that. Like, Dame's a, a smart dude. I think if that were to happen he would look at the situation and recognize that he had a chance to compete and he would quickly get on board. But again, you're talking about potentially trading a a 21-year-old kid who's like a a year removed from winning rookie of the year for somebody who's 33 and, 
you know, slated to be making like $60 million a couple of years from now. I get it. Uh, but I just, I, I just see more upsides than downsides for the Raptors, but I, I'm, I I'm making this case for like the eighth time. Yeah. And I was gonna say, I can't remember if we've recorded an episode together since I wrote that, uh, kind of Raptors choose your own adventure piece with like the three options in front of them before I went on vacay. But yeah, I, we're on the same page here. And in that piece, you know, I wrote about the three options were essentially, you know, stand pat, trade Siakam to build on Barnes' timeline or trade Barnes to win now and Barnes for Dame. And in that, I wrote like they have three options, but to me, the stand pat option should not be an, an option because standing pat doing neither and going into this year with like a lot of uncertainty, a team that probably isn't anything better than like absolute best of first round out and then having to decide on Siakam and OG later or potentially losing one or both. From, like, There's just too much uncertainty there to keep a team together that isn't that good anyway. And so for me, like that should not even be, it's three options, but it should really be two. And it remains confusing to me that they still haven't picked a lane. Like I would completely understand either lane, you know, if it's the, we don't think for whatever reason that moving Barnes for Dame is worth it, or we don't see a future where Siakam and Barnes can win on the same timeline, whatever case they might find, then I totally get it. Yeah. You trade Siakam now, maybe trade OG now, build around Barnes, yeah, the, see, the problem, though, is, like, they missed their window to trade those guys at the peak of their value. I, yeah, but I agree. And that's part of why I say they painted themselves into this corner yeah. where it's like, okay, you decided that you want to try and win now, basically. Even if you didn't think that you decided it, like, all the moves you made made that decision for you. So that's why Pascal hasn't been traded yet. That's why if they do try to trade him, like, what they're going to get back is, like, at best, quarters on the dollar. And... I think it just makes more sense to hold on to your best player and then try and compliment him with another superstar. With one of the yes, 75 he's best players of all time. Yeah, and like, yeah, he's 33, but did you see the offensive Dude, season he had last year? Literally one of the greatest offensive seasons in league history. Yeah, we're talking like, what, 32 points on 65% true shooting? It was insane. Yeah. And he has every single skill in spades that yep. the Raptors so sorely lack. Yep. Like, anyway, whatever. It's, we, it's, we, it's so perfectly fitting. It's unbelievable. And same thing I wrote in that piece, same thing I said when I did an unfiltered episode about this a couple months ago, Masai Ujiri has repeatedly said, you know, about how winning is, like, winning in Toronto again is all that drives them. And, like, we will win again. And we did it before. We're going to do it again. If they actually want to play this by, like, percentages the thing that gives them the best chance to win another championship or compete for a championship anytime in the near future would be trading a guy like Barnes for a guy like Dame because you then become a championship contender right away as opposed to either standing pat with a team that has proven it is very mediocre or building around the Barnes timeline, which is a very big question mark in itself. Like you do that, there's a very real possibility you are trading a guy in Pascal Siakam 
to build around a guy in Barnes who will never be as good as Pascal Siakam. And I say that as someone who's a big Barnes believer. Like, I still think Barnes can hit a level that even Siakam didn't hit. I'm not saying he will, but I'm saying I think there's that potential for Barnes. But it's still a giant risk. He still has to prove it. He is coming off a disappointing second year where his work ethic, maybe off-season training regimen, like all these things were called into question, his focus. Trading a guy like Pascal to build around that guy is still a risk. And if you're, again, if you're playing the championship probabilities model and that's all that drives this front office, apparently, then the move to make would be going all in for a guy like Dame and trying to win again right now. And there you go. We just spent another 17 minutes on something we didn't think we were going to do. We're, we're back. We're baby. officially back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now summer's over. All right. Let's, uh, Let's take a break here and we can come back and we can spend probably 45 minutes talking about the Giannis bullshit. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash. Giannis Antetokounmpo, famed loyal loser, looking to become a disloyal winner, perhaps? He is uh, now twice on record essentially started to lay the groundwork for his possible eventual departure from the Milwaukee Bucks. First, it was a, an interview with the New York Times. I think it was, was it Tanya Ganguly? I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Um, but he, he had an interview with her in the New York Times where I, I guess he was asked about whether he was going to sign an extension. And he was like, no, it doesn't make sense right now. And I'm not going to sign it until I'm sure that everybody is on the same page. And then he went on a the 48-minute podcast, which I have to admit I wasn't familiar with before <laughs> any of this. But he essentially doubled down and you know said something along the lines of like, until or unless I know for sure that everyone's on the same page and committed to winning a championship you know or if there's a better opportunity to win somewhere else then I'm going to have to explore that so we haven't really heard Giannis talk like this ever so I I mean I I think it's pretty clear what's going on here because really Cash if we're to take his comments at face value the timing of them makes no sense (laughs) because the Bucks just paid Middleton and Lopez. Like they paid them a lot of money to keep them around for two or three more years. They fired Bud and replaced him with the coach that Giannis pushed for. And like, I know they're coming off an embarrassing first round loss, but I don't think you could say that was for lack of desire on the part of the front office or the roster. They had the top record in the NBA during the regular season. They just ran into a red hot, Miami Heat team and they kind of wilted and that includes Giannis by the Mm -hmm. way in crunch time of those collapses in games four and five so obviously what he can't say or just won't say is that this is really about how much longer his aging supporting cast is going to be championship caliber and I don't think he's going to come out and throw Brooke and Chris and Drew under the bus but those guys aren't stupid 
Like, we're not stupid. We know what this is about. And he's right to be thinking about it. Yeah. You know, whether he's right to be talking about it is another matter <laughs> right before the season starts. But he is right to be worried that two years from now, when he can opt out of his contract, the guys around him are no longer going to be good enough to make the Bucks a true blue contender. So I think, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, Cash, that he's sort of just seeding this now as a way to prepare the Bucks organization and fan base for this eventuality. As uh, I'm not saying it's an inevitability yep. because, you know, I, if the Bucks do win another championship in the next two years, maybe he doesn't feel as much pressure to go win another one somewhere else. And maybe that would just be enough for him to stick around, maybe wait out like a one or two year dip while the front office phases out the current supporting cast and starts to assemble a new one. But I think for now, he's cognizant of the fact that there's a good chance that that won't happen. And he's just thinking about what his next move is going to be in the event that it doesn't. Yeah. As we both discussed uh, off air via text, I think last week, this seems like it's probably the beginning of him trying to let fans down gently well in advance. Because as you said, these guys, Giannis, his teammates, like, us, we're all smart enough to realize that based on the way it looks, as Middleton and Lopez and even Drew like age out, this team's going to get less and less competitive. They are in, obviously, one of like a, a smaller, non-glamour market that is not going to attract free agents. I don't care that Giannis is there. like, And that's not a knock on Milwaukee, as I've said before, that you could say this about more than two-thirds of the league. Even with another superstar there, they're not signing the marquee free agent when he comes up one year, whatever. So they're not going to be able to replace like star value in free agency. Their, their complimentary players are getting older. And aren't aren't going to be on the most movable contracts. They are not like draft capital wise. They're not going to have it. Um, trade capital wise, you know, like they're not going to be in an advantageous position compared to other suitors a couple years from now. That's just what it is. That's the natural way of things. And the circle of life in the NBA. Teams go through cycles. Milwaukee's is coming to an end. Like that's how it works. And it very much reminds me of even when I think I mentioned this like last year when talking about Dame, when I think he was talking about like, oh, you know, like he's still committed, but like, let's see how the season goes and like wants to make sure the team's in the right, whatever. Or even then when he said like, there was the reports that like, you know, Dame had insinuated that kind of what the Blazers do with that pick will determine whether, it, and we could all be like, well, we we're pretty confident we know we're gonna, they're going to do with the pick, and Dame is too. And so this is just his way of being like, look, I don't want to leave, but if this happens, I'll have to. And it's gave like, me well, no choice, man. Exactly. It's like, dude, we all know that's what's going to happen. So just say, like, just come out and say it. Look, man, I'm probably going to leave Portland, like, which I know you can't actually say, but it's the same thing now with Giannis. That it's like, he can see the writing on the wall. This team's competitive cycle is going to come to an end within the next couple of years, right around the time he can hit free agency and there will be better opportunities to win elsewhere and he's going to take them, which is completely fair. That's what this is to me, as you agree as well. Um, I do think it's funny though that like, you know, and you see this all the time with stars and like, this is why I always laugh when, you know, like whether it's Dame or even Giannis, they say like, oh, but like that guy's like such a loyal guy and it's like, oh, he'll never be the type to do that. Like, oh, like, guys like LeBron should be more like Giannis and just like stick it out. It's like, no, they're like, I don't mean this in a negative way because 
I fully support players, one, doing what they want with their careers, and two, putting themselves in the most competitive situation they can put themselves into. But for the most part, they're all the same in that they want those things. So, yeah, like Giannis or Dame, whoever might seem more loyal than another guy for a certain part of his career. But then at a certain point, even a guy like Giannis, who for the most part, for the first, what, eight years of his career, has never wanted to talk about this stuff, has always talked about how loyal to Milwaukee is, how thankful and grateful to Milwaukee and the Bucks organization he is, goes from that for eight years to now all of a sudden, randomly this summer, you can't go two weeks without him making a comment about how, oh, we'll have to see, like, I know this isn't relevant right now, but hey, by the way, if the Bucks, you know, aren't as competitive as I want them to be, or I don't think we're on the same page with going like all in for winning in a couple of years, I might bounce. Like, it's just funny to me. And the other part that is also funny to me is that Giannis went from, in the span of five months, Giannis went from being the number one overall seed and losing in five games in embarrassing fashion is not failure to five months later in interviews. <laughs> Winning is all that matters to me. Like, that's what will determine everything in two years. Well, if that's the case, buddy, sounds like your team failed five months ago. Yeah, I mean, look, if that embarrassing first-round exit does wind up being the inciting incident that pushed him to force a trade or sign in free agency with an existing juggernaut and win three more championships, was he not right that it was steps to success? <laughs> Yeah, I guess individually, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, like, to your point about loyalty, I, I say this a lot, but, like, it's just the wrong way to think about these yeah. things. It's not the right word. And, like, I'm not discounting the idea of feeling connected to a place, feeling connected to a, an organization that drafted you and believed in you and wanting to do right by the fans there. Like, I'm not saying that has nothing to do with any of this, but if we're going to talk about that, let's at least talk about all the other incentives that come with staying in the same place. Financial incentives where that team can consistently give you the biggest contracts, what it means for you know your personal brand and for your legacy. Like There's a reason that we hear guys talking about wanting to be the next Dirk, wanting their Dirk championship. And it's not just about you know being in the same place and rolling that boulder up the mountain and like finally getting to the top. It's also like, we lionize that Dirk championship in a way that we don't really with any other. I mean, the Giannis one might be the closest one because like that's, that's what people value. It's like, no, you were drafted in this place. You stayed there and you brought them to a championship. Like that is such an aspirational goal because of what that meant for Dirk's legacy. And of course, players want that. And like, ultimately, these players are acting primarily out of self-interest as they should. Like, that's what people do. They want to do right by themselves and their families. More so than they want to do right by the fucking city of Portland. I, like, I'm sorry, Blazers fans, you know, Bucks fans. But it's just... The, these players can do their best to make it feel like they're doing it for you. And maybe to a certain extent they are. But more than that, they're doing it for themselves. And that's As fine. they should be. As they should be. So... Anyway, that's that's what I want to say about the loyalty thing. Like, it's just not... I, I just don't think it's a real thing, at least not in the way that some people maybe want to imagine it. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I I think at the end of the day, I <laughs> the Bucks were already going to be in a bit of a pressure cooker this season. Like, 
you had last season basically being their their last dance kind of thing. You thought they were going to win the championship, but that was sort of going to be the end of the ride. I still think they've got another couple kicks at the can here, but the clock was already ticking, and now it's ticking even more loudly because you know Giannis has has put this additional pressure on the season. Uh, you know, if it wasn't already there, like I'm sure everybody in the organization, from players to coaches to front office, were feeling it already, but. This is just going to make them feel it that much more intensely. And I think what's really going to be interesting is like, if this season is a disappointment in Milwaukee, whatever that means, you know, maybe it means losing in the second round where it just didn't seem like they were all that close to actually winning a championship. Do they ride it out with Giannis for another year and risk him walking for nothing? Or do they think about trading him? That's kind of the big question that I'm going to have depending on what happens this season in Milwaukee. Agreed, because that is a, like, man, that is a reality. No basketball executive, I don't care how astute and, you know, uh, future-minded and how much foresight they have, like, that is a reality no one wants to be confronted with because it is not as easy as your standard star player in a contract year that won't sign an extension. It's like, as good a player as exists today in his prime, you know, even if it's only for a year, him being there gives you a chance to win a championship. But uh, can you stomach the possibility of him walking for nothing in a market like Milwaukee? Like, oh, that is going to be one of the toughest decisions a GM will have ever had to make, at least in our lifetimes. Like, I and that's not an exaggeration. So, yeah, would not want to be the GM having to make that decision. But I think it's going to be a decision that has to be made a year from now. Buckle up. Yep. Uh, yeah. Can we? Should we? Should we end on that note? I, Do you have anything else? I personally you want to think we can. I'm. I'm pretty out of out of topics for this. Okay. Debut uh, episode of the season, or yeah, last episode of the summer. However you want to call it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I'm. I'm cool with that. Uh, we're obviously gonna have a lot of season preview content coming in the next few weeks as we start to ramp up here, and uh, that. You know, I, I think this can suffice for now because yeah. we've hit on uh, all the news of consequence. I think I don't know if people care to talk about Buddy Heald's trade candidacy. I, I guess I don't know. I like, think Buddy Heald's one of those guys. Like, if and when he gets traded, we can definitely talk about it because it, yeah, you know, it, he's a great shooter and all this. But I don't, I don't think we need to talk about Buddy Heald's potential trade <laughs> candidacy. Like. Yeah, I just, the first thing I thought about when I heard that, you know, the extension talks had fizzled out and they were going to try and trade him was, I mean, first of all, what can the Pacers realistically expect back for his expiring contract? And, you know, my, my second thought was, shit, if John Collins was still in Atlanta, we could finally make Cash's dream trade happen. But unfortunately, <sighs> that ship has sailed. Or I don't know, maybe Utah wants to do it yeah, anyway. But it's still good. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's all I got. So let's put a bow on this here. Do we have a fan shout out this week? Cash? We do. Cause we have a couple bank that we never got to over the last month. So, okay. uh, Kyle Stockhill has been waiting over a month for this fan shout and had reached out to me on Instagram. He used to reach out to us on Twitter as well, but he says he no longer has Twitter. Um, says he has been, uh, a fan of, uh, our podcast work and our writing since day one and also throws Will Lou in the mix there too, as a fan of his. So shout out Will Lou. And, uh, and then Kyle included a question as part of his uh, reach out. So pretty easy one. I mean, I can answer it up to you if you also want to answer it. But 
Kyle wanted to know who we believe between Kyrie Irving, James Harden, Kevin Durant, and he's like, you can even throw Damian Lillard in there if we want now, who we believe has, for lack of a better word, like harmed their reputation or whatever the most by their consistent trade requests and performance attached to that. Now, he went with Kyrie. I personally would go with Harden because the thing with Kyrie is I like Kyrie's reputation or whatever being harmed to me is like way more about other stuff than it is about him bouncing from team to team. Kevin Durant, say what you want about a superstar of that magnitude bouncing from team to team or requesting trades, but Kevin Durant is still Kevin freaking Durant. And like his performance has never wavered because of that, right? Even in the playoffs, like even if he's been hurt or whatever, like KD has been KD when you need him to be. And and so no shots fired there. Lillard, this is the first time he's actually done it. And as we just talked about, like even at his age and say what you want about his defense, the season he's coming off of, I'm not going to say like my opinion of him as a player has changed at all. It has to be Harden for me, as we've talked about over the years, countless times, because his performance is actually usually affected when he wants out be, like because he wants it to be that way like he actively tanks his own performance whether through his conditioning what like whatever effort you almost have to respect it though yeah right? that's like i'm not even hating on him for it i'm just saying when you actually take it all into account the way he's kind of burned bridges leaving town places the way his own performance has been affected for me he's got to be the answer to this question and then even if you include the fact that when he gets his way and gets to a certain point, like he's had his own sketchy playoff history, even without the injury. So for me, this one is a pretty easy answer and it's James Harden. Um, Wolf on, if, if you disagree, feel free to do that. If not, I was going to say, thank you, Kyle. One, for your patience in, in waiting for this shout out. Hope it was worth it in the end. And two, for your support over the years, both of our uh, written work and our pod work. Yeah, no, I agree on all of that, both in terms of uh, the shout out to Kyle and the answer. Uh, I I think in general, if you're asking me which of those players has done the most damage to their reputation since they entered the league for one reason or another, <laughs> then I think it's Kyrie. Yes. But if we're talking strictly about trade requests and the, the way that they handle uh, exerting their agency then yeah, I'd say the way that Harden's done it has probably rubbed the most people the wrong way. Uh, and um, I think that that probably has a lot to do with why he can't get himself traded right now. He's like, I'm imagining him like standing at the phone wearing the bodysuit, like calling his friend being like, I can't get traded. Oh, that I I sent Wolf. Mori walks by. He's like, "Hey, bodysuit man!" I uh, I sent Wolf on a clip. I don't. Know if people, I mean, it went viral on Twitter, so maybe other people have seen it too. But someone had posted a clip of like a pretty large man with a beard balling out somewhere, uh, out like on an outdoor cart somewhere in the states with his shirt off, and then uh, someone hilariously like quote t- tweeted it with like something like footage of James Harden working out in Philadelphia or something. It was chef's kiss. It was great. Yeah, it was perfect. Um, all right. Uh, let's, let's leave that all there. We'll be back next week. And after that, we'll just be rolling along with weekly episodes. Like you all remember cash and me back in the saddle, gearing up for the 2023, 24 season. But for now, we'll leave you with this mess of an episode. It's great to be back. 
We'll talk to you all soon. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock. 